where we've been looking at major characters in the Bible and how they point to Jesus, specifically their achievements and how Jesus surpasses them and their shortcomings and how Jesus covers them. Now, we spent the last five weeks going through Genesis, and uh, uh, this week we're going to be talking about the most important dude in the Old Testament. If he's not the most important, he's definitely in the top five. Um, uh, He does a ton of stuff. His life actually spans three books, so we're going to get out of here by like 8 p.m. We've got to get going now. Uh, But for real, we'll, we'll focus on Exodus today, and I will try my best to give you the cliff notes um, and most of it until we focus on our story today. Now, Moses is unique because so far uh, this this story has been God dealing with individuals and making covenants with individuals. And at this point, um, and it, basically what he says with those individuals is, I will multiply you, I will prosper you, I will make you a great nation. By this point, that's true. So Moses' story is intertwined with the people of God. Um, So they affect him, he affects them. Um, So we're going to go through a lot this morning. And uh, before we do that, we should pray. God, we uh, thank you for this time that we can spend together learning about you. I pray, Lord, that you would use me to be a blessing to people today and that you would get your way. Come, Lord Jesus, and speak to us. Amen. So Moses' life begins in a pretty interesting time uh, in the history of the Jews. They are currently living in Egypt and been living there for quite some time. Uh, And it's actually a time of great oppression because Pharaoh has seen that these people have multiplied and there's so many of them that it's starting to worry him a bit. So he decides that he's going to enslave them and oppress them further, which doesn't really go well. I mean, never really does. Um, so this problem persists where he feels like there's too many of them. They're going to gain up the upper hand. They're going to help his enemies when the time comes, and, uh, and uh, Egypt will be in trouble. So he decides that he's got to cut down on the number of them, thinks killing the sons of Israel would be the best way to do that. And there's some mixed results. Some, some midwives, Hebrew midwives, uh, end up saving the day and saving a ton of the little boys' lives by lying to Pharaoh. Um, <clears throat> so Pharaoh goes even further into, into this oppression and decides he's just going to flat-out kill some kids, um, which is horrifying. But uh, Moses' life is spared because... He's actually put into a basket downstream from the, uh, the Egyptian princess, Pharaoh's daughter. And she takes this lowly child and raises him as royalty. So Moses, as an adult, after he's been raised as essentially a prince, um, he, uh, he witnesses an Egyptian beating uh, an Israelite, and he's not happy about this. So much so that he actually murders this guy. And a botched cover-up leads to his fleeing from, from uh, Egypt and going to the wilderness uh, to escape the consequences of his actions. Um, there, he further encounters some injustice, saves some women who are being victimized by shepherds. He eventually marries one of these women. 
And he appears to be pretty content uh, with his life as a shepherd. And this is normally where I start to slow down and start talking about Moses' life because I, I really start to identify with him here when he encounters God and God's calling and he says, I'm not good enough. I can't speak eloquently enough. I mumble, I stumble through my words. And honestly, that I feel like that's true of me or at least has been true of me in the past, and God's worked through that a lot. So normally I would stop there and start unpacking this and going through the deliverance of God's people and what happens next, but I feel like God wanted us to focus somewhere else, a less popular story, because most of us have heard of, of Exodus and the Egyptians leaving, uh, letting the, the, the Israelites go. So... We're going to keep on going. Moses uh, tries to reject his calling, but God does not allow it. He won't hear hear it. And he appoints his brother, Moses' brother, Aaron, to help him. Armed with God's signs and wonders and message, he goes to liberate his people. It does not go well at first, and Pharaoh actually increases their workload. Uh, but But Moses persists and warns Pharaoh multiple times. In between those warnings... Uh, God starts releasing a series of plagues. And these plagues actually directly challenge a lot of Egyptian gods, which I think is is really interesting. He's actually doing spiritual warfare, showing that he has control over all of their gods that they thought they had control over. These series of plagues culminate in the death of Pharaoh's oldest son, as as all of the firstborns are killed by God. Pharaoh, who considered is actually considered a god, like the Egyptians worship their kings, their pharaohs, as gods, uh, is humiliated and grief-stricken by the death of his son. And the the people of God are actually spared by the Passover lamb. And what this Passover lamb is, a lamb that they would sacrifice and spread the blood over their house, to allow the spirit of death, or the angel of death, to pass over their house and spare them that punishment. So Pharaoh finally gets the point and decides to release the, uh, the Israelites from bondage, but quickly changes his mind and proceeds to kill them. So he's chased. The, the the people of God are chased by the Egyptians into the red uh, into the desert, where they come up to a, a body of water called the Red Sea, where they have no way to get across. They're worried about um, the Egyptians crushing them when they finally catch up with their chariots. Uh, they're worried about you know just getting washed away in the water in their attempt to cross hastily. Uh, but God steps in. He brings down a pillar of fire and smoke to, to stop the Egyptians from getting any closer, so he slows them down. And then while he's doing this, he actually opens a, a way through the water, which is really, really exciting, really cool moment for them. And as the Israelites pass through, the Egyptians begin to chase them. And as they do, the waves come crashing down on them, ending the pursuit and wiping out Israelites' enemies. Now safe... The people of God journey to Mount Sinai, where God has big plans for them. And along the way, he's actually provided for them supernaturally uh, in a couple of different ways, um, including mysterious manna 
which is like bread falling out of the sky apparently, and water from a rock. When they arrive, Moses prepares his people to meet God by consecrating them. And this is this is supposed to be a moment where where they had never experienced anything like this. He's consecrating them. He's getting them ready for a couple days. Um, and he's making sure that they're clean and that their actions have been clean and pure. And then God brings his presence to a mountain. And to me, it seems like his presence sounds more like an active volcano than, than something I would want to be around. Uh, because there's fire, there's smoke, noise, shaking, and even thunder and lightning. Which, volcanic lightning, that's a thing. Yeah, that's scary stuff. Like lava wasn't bad enough, lightning isn't bad enough. That's a joint forces. <clears throat> so Moses warns his people uh, not to go to mortar, I mean Mount Sinai. Um, which, uh, if they were to go up there, they would actually be stoned by the people of God because they're not allowed to, to see God. So Moses goes up to the mountain, and God speaks, revealing the Ten Commandments to him. Afterwards, in chapter 20, 19, uh, he's, Moses has come back down, explained that to him, and the people of God are terrified. They actually say, speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. And I think the circumstances make that quite understandable. God is, looks like this fierce cloud of smoke and fire and thunder and lightning. The ground beneath them, the only thing they probably thought was safe in their entire lives, is no longer safe either. But Moses assures them that this isn't the case, that they won't perish, that God's just merely testing them. And he approaches, I love the way they put it, approaches the thick darkness where God was. <laughs> Comes back a little bit later um, to relay God's expectations. He, he laid out some more stuff for them. Uh, so he, he replies, or he tells them this, and the people reply, and this is, this is exactly the response you'd hope they have. In 24, 7 through 8, they say, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the, blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Cool. Great moment. What Moses does next is he goes up into the mountain, Mind you, still covered in smoke and fire and lightning. And he disappears for 40 days. What he's doing there is he's talking to, to God, getting all of his expectations laid out, which is pretty unique uh, in ancient Near Eastern cultures. They don't usually get this, like, this list of what will make your God happy. In fact, they spend most of their time wondering how they can please their gods. And God is instead saying, this is what will make me happy. So he's actually up there for 40 days and 40 nights, which in reading it spans eight chapters. So we're not going to go through those eight chapters, but because um, <laughs> we, we do want to do other stuff today. But um, 
but we're going to pick up in, in chapter 32. So this is this is great because this is actually the first time the the Israelites have spoken since their their previous. Um, we will do everything the Lord has the Lord has said. We will obey. This is the next time they speak. When the people saw that Moses was, was so long in coming down from the mountain, and we're going to be reading a fair amount of chapter 32. We're going to be going one through. 14, which if you want to go in your Bibles, we're doing chapter 32, Exodus 1 through 14. If you know the page, 61. Um, but yeah, when the, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As, is, as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. He's gone for 40 days, 40 nights. Maybe he died or something or ran away. Who knows? Aaron, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, These are your gods, Israel who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in reverently. I practiced that, I swear. Um... <laughs> Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up from Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bound down to it, sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Hold on to that term. Now leave me alone, so that my anchor may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom, brought you out of, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was the evil intent it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give, you, give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Does this sound familiar? I mean, we you guys think of any of the other examples that sound like this story? Noah, Explain. So he was mad with the people then, decides he's going to wipe them out with a flood. Okay? Sounds like history is repeating itself a bit. Yeah. 
What'd you say? Jesus. Go on. Good. I feel like you read ahead. But yeah. <laughs> it's, it's better than this, I promise. Um, <clears throat> all right. Um, anything else? Does it sound like anything that's happened recently uh, in, in the, the sermon series we've been doing? It's okay if it hasn't. To me, it rings true of like what Adam and Eve did. They had this great moment with God. They're created. They have pretty much nothing bad in the world, and they go ahead and screw that up immediately. And then we see uh, Abraham do some similar things. He's got this great connection with God, and he still does some really weird things with his life. Noah does the same thing. Um, he promises Noah that he's going to start over with him. And the, the world is white clean of sin, and then Noah and his family start sinning immediately. Again and again we see this. At least we humans are consistently inconsistent, right? Now this disobedience is the first time that they've spoken since they said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Their rebellion is actually really ironic. We didn't have enough time to go through it all, but, but God has been laying out what uh, the preparations for worship should be like. Um, so they are actually trying to create what God has already provided for his people. They take initiative rather than letting God take initiative. The offerings are demanded. So Aaron demands the offerings rather than people giving themselves willingly to the creation of something of a place to worship. Uh, there's no elaborate preparations for any of this. I mean, the past like eight chapters get pretty detailed about about the preparations, and they are like, nope, let's skip all that. In fact, let's do it overnight. Um, the space where where their God would dwell, uh, according to God, would be in this closed, protected, guarded area where only few people could ever enter. And instead, now it's out in the air where everyone can see it. And they take the invisible God and make him visible and tangible. And then lastly, probably the most telling thing that they do is they take something that's personal. They take God, who is personal, has been with them, taking care of them, and make them into something impersonal that they can control. See, their idolatry attempts to to ascribe what is true about God to something else. And they're not alone in this. I mean, we do this, right? I know in my own life, um, I do that with food. I may have told you this before, but I, if I have an emotion... The food pairs really well with it. If I'm happy and I want to celebrate, I go to food. That helps me celebrate. If I'm sad and I need to relax, food will be my comfort. If I'm bored, food will entertain me. And what I'm doing is ascribing what's true about God to something else. Because really, God will be my comfort. And God will be my entertainment. God wants to celebrate with me. See, their idolatry, it's an act of unfaithfulness. 
in addition to violating this commandment, their actions have damaged their relationship with God. And that's what the commandments are actually all about. They're about preserving your community. They don't actually talk much about what you should be doing on your own in private. They talk a lot about evil that you can do to your neighbors and how you can ruin your community and other people's lives and how you can ruin your relationship with God. It's easy to see why God is not happy. But luckily, Moses steps in, and I think this is actually the crowning achievement of Moses' life. His whole life has led up to this moment. Because God actually sounds like he's, distant, he's distancing himself from his people. Before he'd say, these are my people, I will take care of them. And now he's saying, <clears throat> he refers to them as your people. And he says, you brought them out of Egypt. He calls them stiff-necked people and threatens to destroy them and start over with Moses. <clears throat> what Moses does next is, is pretty remarkable and multifaceted. He steps into the very role that Israel should have been taking on themselves. See, God has been clear in saying that Israel is actually meant to be a holy nation, a priesthood to everyone else that isn't them, to the other nations, to the outsiders. They are supposed to be the outsider's connection to God. So Moses steps into that role on behalf of Israel and mediates for them. See, the people of God are meant to follow the commandments not to confirm that they are God's people, because that is already true. That has been true since his covenants with, with all the guys we've talked about in the past couple weeks. They are to follow the commandments to be a benefit to the other nations. So Moses steps into this role, shows them what they should be like, and he actually argues with God. Does anybody have any experience with that? I've done that in my own life. I argue, argue with God, and he just turns around and makes me feel little, puts me in my place, which is exactly what I need in that situation, the reminder that he's got it. He doesn't need my help. But this, this interaction seems a little different. We don't really get an exact tone for God, but it's clear that um, Moses thinks he can change his mind. And he's actually successful in doing so. His argument is actually threefold. He says, look, uh, first of all, he actually gets the confession of what happened right. Because uh, the Israelites will say, oh, that guy, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt. And he says, no, God, you brought them out of Egypt. These are your people. And you just delivered them. Why would you quickly undo this? So he's kind of appear, appealing to his rationale. You know, you're reasonable. Why are you going to undo something you just did? Then he, uh, then he uh, uh, appeals to God's reputation, which God seems to be concerned about. That's why he's creating a, a nation that can raise the reputation of God amongst other people. So... He's going to lose his ability to do that through these people. And worse than that, the evil Egyptians would be able to say that, you know, he did this on purpose. He brought them out to destroy them. So all, all the things he had, he had just did would 
basically undo his very goal in raising his own reputation. Moses then reminds God of his promise and the multiple people that he's promised that to, in which God has sworn to multiply these people and not destroy them. So God changes his mind. He says, I will not destroy them. But what's not clear, and this this becomes increasingly clear to us over the next couple of chapters, is um, we're not sure where God stands with his people. It's clear he's not going to destroy them, but that's not the, that's not like, so they're being spared some punishment. But is he going to be with them? Is he still going to be their God? How are they going to be connected? What is life going to be like going forward? So they don't dive into that right now. Moses has achieved his objective, save these people's lives, at least for now. And he goes down to deal with these people. And I'll, there's a lot to go here, there, so we're going to go through, um, with the Cliff Notes version. But uh, Moses breaks the tablets. So he gets these commandments, and uh, they write on them, God wrote down all of the commandments and what, what they should be doing. First thing Moses does when he sees everything, see everything that they're doing is he breaks these these commandments because in Moses' eyes this covenant has been shattered. He needs to wake these people up. They've they've broken the promise that they just made. <clears throat> he then destroys their idol, even caught and forcing people to drink the powdered uh, golden calves in their water. He confronts Aaron because uh, he let the Israelites become a laughing stock amongst their enemies. Aaron actually lies to him and says, oh, I just threw this gold in the fire and it came out like this. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and then he calls all that are still loyal. And only the, the, the Levites stand up. So only one of many tribes stand up. And they're sent to kill their brother, friend, and neighbor. Which is, I mean, that's a harsh punishment. But what's unique about this is if he had said, all who are loyal to God, stand up, and everyone stood up, there would be nobody to kill. But they didn't. They didn't stand up. Only one group did. And it just further highlights their ambivalence their crisis of unfaithfulness. They just completely have abandoned God. What is going on here? Why would, why would people do this? You guys have any, idea, any ideas about that? But basically, uh, you're saying that it's, they're trying to wait and see if there's something better to come along? From God, gotcha. Or from someone else. Okay, so maybe there's a better God out there that'll, that'll take care of it for them. Yeah, that's a good good thought. Yeah, they don't trust God. Which is unique because these people would have woken up, eaten manna from heaven, washed it down with some water from a rock, and could talk about the things that happened just a few months ago when God freed them from slavery. See, these people, they were, feed, they were freed physically. But the truth is, is they're still spiritually enslaved. They're spiritually enslaved to sin. 
And this has been true of everyone that we've talked about through this series. So having dealt with his people and reprimanded them, he goes to, Moses goes to, to figure out if they're going to be forgiven, to figure out if they have a future with God. So in, in Exodus 32, 31 to 35, Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves God, gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replies to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish them, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with, with the calf Aaron made. So Moses doesn't just try to secure their their lives. He wants to secure their relationship with God. He even offers up his own life as an opportunity to, to, to basically sacrifice himself to spare them. But God rejects this offer, offer and opts to, to punish those who have sinned against him. He sends a plague. And it actually goes on to say that an angel will go with them the rest of the way. But God is not going. His relationship to them has changed. I will not go. And actually, like to me, it sounds almost like an act of mercy because he says, uh, if I go with them, they're not going to survive the journey. I will destroy them along the way. And people are shocked. The people of God are shocked to hear this. And they appropriately begin to grieve and mourn. Now things take a turn at the place called the Tent of Meeting, which is essentially a tent in the desert where these people can, or where Moses can meet with God and basically have negotiations. It's a neutral territory with intense negotiations take place. And the people take this extremely serious. They respond with humility, respect, and worship. When Moses goes in there, they bow down and worship because they want to show God that they have changed, that they've been woken up. And what's clear in these passages is that God doesn't want to decide the fate of their future on his own. He wants human involvement. He wants to talk to Moses about this. He wants these people to pray and worship to him. And if that's not a ringing endorsement to prayer, I don't know what is. God, who seems immovable to me, is actually not immovable. He wants you to talk to him because he will shape reality to fit your requests. Now, I think that's pretty amazing. Now, he won't change his course um, on the grand scale. His... His course is set. He wants to save us. He wants to redeem his people. He wants to win his people back. But how he does that along the way, that's up for debate, apparently. And you can join in that debate. And he'll listen. So Moses uh, starts this, this plea with what he's been saying all along. I can't do this by myself. I need help. And he, he kind of says, you know, 
how are you going to fulfill your promise to me? How are you going to help me do what you've asked me to do? This is his really reverent way of saying, are we good? Like, is this going to be okay? Can we move past this? And uh, God actually says that his presence, or literally his face, will go with him. And uh, and Moses is like, great, you're going to go with me or us? So he presses them a little further and trying to get a clear answer. That he won't just be with Moses himself, but with all of his people. And because of Moses' favor with God, God grants his request. So Moses asks even asks for a sign in seeing God's glory and face and presence completely. And God grants it in part. He says, yeah, you can see part of me, because if you see my face, you will have to die. So he puts Moses in a rock and puts his hand over it and passes in front of him. But he doesn't just say, I want you to see my face. He says, I also want you to see my goodness. He's concerned that Moses has an accurate understanding of God's character. So in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, we see, see this. And as he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands. And what thousands means here is the thousands of generations. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses looks up our God, and responds appropriately with worship and pleads for forgiveness and his presence, not in spite of their stiff-necked people, but because they are stiff-necked people. He claims that they need them, they need him because they fall short on their own. And then God drives home his graciousness by making another covenant with these people, these faithless people, in which he promises his presence, his power, protection, and provision. And it's a pretty remarkable moment. It even seems to suggest that they don't really need to do anything to live up to this part of his promise. That he will take care of them. He still gives commandments, but it's clear that it's for their good. And that's ultimately what the, the commandments are there for, is they're there for our freedom. They show us what's off limits so that we can avoid them and have a free life, a good life. And I think Moses' persistence and faithfulness leads to some really remarkable things. But what strikes me is how Jesus ends up fulfilling all of these things, surpassing all of them. So Moses, first thing he does, he gets a call, he rejects it. First thing Jesus does is he gets a call and he accepts it. Moses delivers the people out of bondage, but Jesus delivers people out of spiritual bondage. In Galatians 5.1 we say, we hear, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Moses reveals to them that God will send bread from heaven to sustain them. Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life. Moses communicates the letter of the law, while Jesus expounds on the spirit of the law. If you want an example of that, just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. The people of God are supposed to be a holy nation that acts like a priesthood to the other nations under Moses' law. But they fall short of this. They don't live up to it. But Peter refers to, to Jesus' church as such in 1 Peter 2, 9-10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In fact, this priesthood is made up of the nations. It is the fulfillment of God's commandment and promise and and covenant. And it's made up of the the nations so God's glory and reputation can be spread everywhere. That's us. We're that royal priesthood. And we should be making his name great. We get to make his name great. Um, Moses offered his future for his people. And God rejects that offer. Jesus offers his life for all people and takes the wrath of God for their sin. In fact, God tells Moses that he will pour wrath out on the children of those who sin against him and then goes and pours wrath out on his own child so that those children could be spared. Moses secures atonement for his people, but it doesn't last. They end up setting a, a sacrificial system so they can repeat this again and again and again. And Jesus is the final sacrifice that completes the atonement of all people once and for all. Which means you are clean. Any guilt you you carry is no longer yours. Moses asks God to see his full glory and face, but can't, because he'll die. Jesus reveals the face of God to everyone, including Moses on the trans- during the uh, the transfiguration, proving once and for all that our God is not some statue, but is personal, cares, even willing to give up his kingly status to become poor, which is the very opposite thing that Moses did. See, Moses was content with the presence of God amongst his people, while Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to be in us. Not just with us, but in us. That means his power, his presence, his protection, his provision isn't just at our fingertips, it's in them. And the covenant that Moses mediates claims that God will do wonders never before seen. What's more wonderful than Jesus? 
In fact, the, the covenant that Jesus mediates proclaims that we get to give God our sin, our brokenness, our slavery, our injustice, our loneliness, our disease, our death. And in return, he'll give us wholeness, holiness, life, freedom, justice, health. And more important than all of that, we get to keep our right relationship with God. We get God back. More appropriately, he gets us back. See, Jesus' covenant is good news for all because the one has died for the many. In a moment here, we're going to take communion. And uh, and given everything we've gone over, I feel like we should remind ourselves where communion comes from. So in, uh, in Luke chapter 22, 19 through 20, This takes place the night that Jesus was betrayed during the Passover festival. Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's take a second and remember that covenant. That covenant that far surpasses anything Moses did. Where we get to be adopted into the family of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, for wonderful people like Moses who, who changed the course of history. But we thank you even more for Jesus who went beyond anything he could ever do to secure freedom and life for more than just one people, but also for us. Help us to remember that in our lives, that we're clean, we're holy, and you've completed that work in us. We don't need to keep struggling for it. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Be in us and remind us that we have your presence, your power, your protection, your provision right here with us wherever we go because you are in us. Thank you for what you did on the cross, Jesus, in completing all of this. Amen.